You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review's senior editor, Daniel Horowitz. And along with co-host Joe Koss, they break down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering The Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to The Conservative Conscience. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, in the house in CR's Northern Command here in Maryland on Thursday, April 6th. Man, where has time gone? I barely have any wind left in me, so I don't even know if I can last this podcast. Uh, It has been such a long week. The convergence of every major policy issue at once, um, just kind of like operating at pedal to the metal intensity every single day. Um, You know, basically the most intense periods of a of any political era except that's every day so here we are um want to go through a lot of different issues today and i don't know how many we're gonna have time but just to kind of go round robin and really update on you update you on on my thoughts on some of these issues um from the budget and obamacare to neil gorsuch and the senate and the filibuster stuff going on in in the administration foreign policy you know just as a as a starting point i don't have time to go through all of this and i know we've checked the boxes on some of the previous broadcasts but i'm going to link to in the show notes from the gatestone institute there's a terrific article going through all of the problematic political appointments of this administration um, and, and I'm not talking about just, you know, well, kind of establishment Republicans, which are bad enough, basically Democrats. Um, I'm talking about hardcore leftists. I'm talking about Obama people. So it kind of goes agency by agency. It's a really good resource to have whoever put it together. Um, a lot of the work was done by our guy, Jordan Schachtel. Um, you know, he put a lot of this, but, but this is all in one article, you know, the other article I'm going to link to is from Brandon Darby, terrific guy at Breitbart, one of the better guys, uh, who's the one who runs the Texas Bureau. And he's he's really an expert on immigration. He really gets the details right. He knows the issue. And guess what? You know, immigration was the one issue we thought Trump would be good on. And we're seeing more and more, you know, a couple good things here and there, but there's a lot of problems as well. The person who was chosen as commissioner of CBP, right, Customs and Border Patrol, is an Obama holdover. <laughs> so, you know, we talk about the deep state, but what about the shallow state? The, the new individuals that Trump is hiring. This is unbelievable. Um, you know, I'm, ju- I'm just reading from this article here. The feelings of betrayal come just days after the announcement of Obama hire Kevin... <coughs> McLean as the next commissioner of CPB, while the organization that represents the agents, these are the Border Patrol agents, the National Border Patrol Council, has not spoken about the nomination. Darby spoke about how the line agents feel, uh, how the line agents feel let down, and they go on and 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 feel how and and talk about how they feel betrayed. You know, this is a very big problem when you have a guy like Steve Bannon getting sidelined. What does it tell you? 
I mean, he was very close with the president. You know, Jared Kushner. I mean, and, and who elected this guy? Who elected this this little boy that knows nothing about policy and politics, much less conservative politics? These progressives, Gary Cohn, Dina Powell. This is a very big problem. That's what I'm just saying. This is this is not just one issue. This is every issue is going down the tubes. Um, you know, originally we thought we might have a battle on our hands between conservatism and this whatever you want to call it, nationalist populism. But you're, we're not even getting this nationalist populism. It's just progressivism, straight up, a hundred proof. So anyway, that's that's what that. Um, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. I mean, this is, I almost feel like we're at hospice stage with this administration. It's so rampant. I don't know what you do about it. I don't know what you do when, you know, you can never fire the biggest troublemakers, and that's his daughter and son-in-law. You know, then when you add the New York crowd that they're close with and have always been working with, we've got a major problem here. You know, we'll start with foreign policy, for example. We thought one of the big changes that we'd see from Trump, and, and even I thought that, and I had pretty low expectations, was that we would stop this endless nonsense of refereeing Islamic civil wars, of getting our soldiers permanently involved in a no-outcome, endless nation-building, social engineering, refereeing Islamic civil wars, dying on the sword of Islam under the false guise of humanitarianism when there's nothing we can do to save people from Islam, from Islamic civil wars, except spend trillions of dollars, lose thousands of lives, you know, people permanently disabled, PTSD. You know, Trump got up there and said the Iraq war was a colossal mistake. And he said, we're not going to do this anymore. We're going to fight for Americans. And I think that was kind of embodied by his statement that, what the heck? Yeah, we should have gone in there and taken their oil. And the, and the point is, you know, people laugh at that, but the point is that, <laughs> yeah, I mean, a country should look out for its own interests. And if we're going to get involved in things, we should benefit from it or don't get involved in it. And I thought we learned this lesson. I thought the fact that we already still have Iraq on our hands. You know, Obama, before he left, had 7,000 troops in there, but don't tell anyone. Trump is now upping it. At least he's honest about doing it. Um, Afghanistan is untenable after 15 years. We have nothing to show for trillions of dollars. I mean, it, 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 we could have flushed it down the toilet and done a better job. But other than, like I said, casualties, more destabilization, more Islamic factions growing up, and to boot, hundreds of thousands of Islamic refugees. <laughs> That's what we do. So under the guise of protecting America, we go over there, referee their battles, and bring our people here. I'm sorry, bring their people here. And then we have the political problems. You expend all your political capital on these unwinnable wars, and arguably Iraq is what got us Obamacare. We would have never lost the House without that. You know, maybe even if you say the presidency would have swung back because of the financial collapse, we wouldn't have lost the House in 2006, two years prior, and we wouldn't have had Obamacare. So what are we doing? Here we are again. 
by these same idiotic advisors advising Trump to get sucked in. And I know even some conservatives are spanning a different line on this, on the Syria involvement. And I've never changed from the Obama time, and I'm not going to change just because Trump is president. When I wrote a while back for Fox News an article, um, gosh, this must have been four years ago. You know, let Allah decide. You know, this is not our our battle. So what happens is we have this imagery. Look, I look at what ISIS is doing. How could we let this happen? And then a couple of months later, we say, "Look at what's happening. Look at what Assad's doing. How could we let this happen?" Well, wh- you're right. I mean, but <laughs> what, what do you want us to do? Don't you believe we have to take action? Well, what action? If I could snap my fingers, I Assad has got to go. ISIS has got to go. All the splinter Al-Qaeda factions have to go. Ahar al-Sham has to go. The Muslim Brotherhood has to go. The Islamic Front has to go. Hezbollah has to go. Russia has to go. Iran has to go. And the entire Middle East should be blown up. But, you know, what do you do with that? I have an article detailing this at length, the philosophical argument, and just nobody has explained to me. So, So what happens? So we vanquish ISIS, we vanquish... So, so we already have troops fighting ISIS, evidently. Whatever that means. So now what, we send half of our troops to fight Assad? Now, I understand that it's a little bit more complicated than saying Assad's fighting ISIS, but they're not allies. They are kind of fighting each other. So, you know, again, th- there's multiple factions. And by the way, you also have a lot of these Al-Qaeda-style affiliates are really on the incline. You know, ISIS is kind of going downhill. These other groups are on the incline. What are we supposed to do about that? This is the enduring lesson of Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, maybe with Iran, it w- would have been better, you know, to it, 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 to come in there, you know, work with the civil society. There's more of a civil society. It's, a sta- it's, it's more of a nation state. Um, they kind of have a proud Persian heritage. They're not Arab. There's maybe what to work with. You know, with Egypt, there's what to work with, with Sisi. When it comes to Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan, these type of countries, you know, they were created after World War I. And they're really multiple countries inside of them, multiple factions. You'll never put that baby back together. What are you supposed to do? You know, I, I, I don't have a better analogy for what I've said before. It's like you jump into a septic, t- you have a septic tank of snakes, scorpions, um, piranhas, and uh, killer whales. And I say, you know what? The piranhas have got to go. So I'm going to jump into the tank and focus on killing the piranhas. Well, you're, I mean, you're going to get eaten up and you're not going to solve the problem. You're just going to hurt yourself. There, you know, what what you have to do is stand outside the septic tank, from a position of 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 strength, and contain it. And you know, if any one of those entities, you know, basically threatens your strategic interests, you go, um, you know, you go and 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 blow it up. And that's kind of what Israel does. But you don't jump into it. 
And, and everyone's going to say, well, Daniel, what about the civilians? Well, I mean, I, I don't know what to tell you. It's horrible. Islam has major problems. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the problem. The problem is not our lack of involvement. It's Islam needs a reformation. Uh, you know what I mean? There's nothing we can do about that. You know, so, so let's say we go in there and remove Assad after tremendous casualties somehow not butting heads with Russia, which I don't know what that what that's going to look like. Um, then what? Then what? Someone's got to explain that. You're never going to... It's a reflection of the people. It's not... The problem is not Assad or ISIS. It's a reflection of the population. I hate to tell you. You're always going to have those problems there. And in fact... You know, you'll have people dying further from the civil war. You know, people died, tremendous amount of people died under Saddam, but a tremendous amount of people died afterwards, possibly more because of what we did, except we also died and destroyed our money and our political capital and everything else. So I I don't know what you can do. Someone's got to demonstrate, you can't just show me pictures of dying children as a punchline. Like that's a policy punchline for the U.S. military. I, I agree. It's horrible. Like, well, what do you want me to tell you? You know, it's not like a matter of, you know, if, if there's a way to bomb a chemical warfare facility, do it. If you want to do what Reagan did to Gaddafi, just send some bombs at his palace, do it. And likewise, you want to drop an atomic bomb on Raqqa, I'm all for it. But that's not, you, you and I both know, that's not what we do these days. You're going to get our guys involved in endless ground war, um, you know, and even if you don't do that, you'll send thousands of special ops, but won't call them ground troops, but we'll treat them like ground troops, stretch them thin with a, a mission that has no logical outcome. You know, we, we already had the CIA and the Pentagon fighting each other. Literally, we're fighting each other. Backing different rival Islamic groups, weapons falling into the hands of Islamists. It's the same cycle. And somehow the philosophy is doing nothing is not an op- option. You have to get involved. Questions of solvency are later. It's kind of like the healthcare. Pass the healthcare bill. We'll ask questions about the details. I mean, really? I mean, you need to show me what are you going to do? How is this going to be different? How is this not going to be Iraq 2.0? I'm just not seeing it. You know, obviously... There's a lot of things we can do outside from a position of strength, and I write this all in my piece. We can go after Iran, abrogate the deal. We can put the screws to Russia, put the screws to the people funding him. But, I mean, if your goal is regime change, just, just you, you got to understand, once you break it, you own it. And what exactly are we going to replace that with? Um, and, and the reality is the opposite. Going in there and putting our people in the septic tank without a, an a articulation of our strategic interests, what we're going to get out of it, the, the cost-benefit analysis, the risk-return matrix, just the prudence of it, that is not an option. The only thing worse than not having a plan in the Middle East is sending our troops in harm's way and not having a plan. <laughs> But but we've never viewed it that way for the last two decades, and and we got we, we better start. And I I just I I don't get it. 
He's already sent more troops to Iraq. He's already sent troops to Ra- to ta- so-called take Raqqa from, from ISIS. And now, what, we're going to fight the people that are fighting ISIS, but somehow beat them too, you know, and then find a bunch of Thomas Jeffersons to then govern and hold it together and vanquish everyone. I, I just, you know what I mean? It's not like during World War II where, you know, FDR refused to bomb the train and, and the and the barracks leading to the concentration camps. He basically had known locations where 90% of the people were being killed and you could just, you know, take it out. You know, again, I, I am, you know, obviously first and for- foremost is American interest. I am all for the notion, the moral case that God gave us certain resources as America and when there is a moral case to be made and it is minimal risk to our military and you could really get bang for your buck and actually save lives without it really growing legs. I, I, I'm I'm for that. You, you know, even even if it doesn't, you know, in a vacuum benefit America, I, I I actually support that argument. I am not seeing that here. No one's explaining to me how you, in the long run, protect the civilian population of Syria, which gets a little murky. What's a civilian in the Middle East? Because they're all kind of civilians until they're not. But, um, and again, I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, everyone, you know, these people de- deserve to die, but you know, again, that, that we're not doing it and we don't have the tools to solve that. There's no, there's no clean play to be made. You know, um, if, uh, if a bunch of Islamists invade Iceland and they take it over, so there's what to go in there and dislodge them and restore, you know, the civil society that they had. You know, this is the enduring lesson of World War II with Germany and Japan or what happened with, you know, the collapse of the Soviet Union taking over Eastern Europe. With the Middle East, it, it, it's, it's, there's two layers. It's Islam is number one. There is no civil society. It's the Arab culture, number two. And number three, it's the, it's the um, sectarian Arab culture. So they're, they're, they're not even nation states. They never were. They were held together by brutal dictators. You know, the dictatorship collapse collapses. You're never going to put that genie back in the bottle. You know, I hear people telling me, oh, my gosh, it's terrible. So there's two schools of thought. One is, oh, Russia's awesome, and we need to work with Russia on Assad to vanquish ISIS. The other school of thought is, no, Russia and, I- and Assad are terrible. They have to go. Um, how dare Russia get involved in Syria? I'm the third school, which is, I agree, I hate Russia, which is why I laugh at them for getting involved in Syria. I'm, I, I, I wish that upon them. That's their Afghanistan 2.0. Oh, no, they're going to take over and become a major power. Really? You are never going to put that genie back in the bottle, no matter how much they invest into Assad. That Sunni insurgency you will never... You could degrade ISIS proper as, as, it's, as a state, um, but, you know, like Al-Qaeda in Iraq taught us, it's sleeping dogs lying. You're always... It's whack-a-mole. They're going to keep coming back. I mean, that dictatorship fell apart, especially in this era of the internet and mass communications. The Islamic insurrections are not going to be put down. Um... It, 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 it's ungovernable. You just, you can't govern that. <laughs> so I'd rather Russia has it on their hands than us. Again, and, and, and you know me, I am not an isolationist. I'm a, I'm a hawk. I say this for my hawk. I, I believe this is the hawkish position 
is not to degrade yourself, is to allow your enemies to fight themselves. And you you, you stay engaged. I don't mean, I mean, you know, you want to protect, make sure Jordan doesn't fall around the perimeter. There's there's things. I mean, you should be working with Israel on, on the Golan border, um, you know, to make sure they don't have issues rather than harassing them about settlements like the Trump administration is doing now. And they promised they wouldn't do. So anyway, we're going to have more on this. I'll link to that article. But um, I, I really, I mean, that's going to be devastating if we get involved in there. We will not win. And, uh, and you know, especially the advice that he's taking and the fact that the military has not been cleared out. The the mentality is, is still there. Um, and again, like I said, there's no, meaning even if you do, Daniel, no, we're going to do it in full force. Do what with full force? Take out Assad with full force. Okay, I, I we we could militarily do that. I and I'm not against it in a vacuum. But I, I agree, Assad should go, but that, that but everyone needs to go. That that's the problem. You know, you got to look at everything in totality. A conservative doesn't get sucked into viewing something in a vacuum. But we're going overtime here. I want to move on to the next thing: the filibuster and um and Gorsuch. So, all right, so now we're going to have a Supreme Court Justice, Neil Gorsuch. Republicans blew up the filibuster. Oh, my gosh, so much going on just to get back to the Obergefell balance of the Supreme Court, except it's actually even worse because Gorsuch is at least one, two, three deviations to the left of Scalia. So what have we gotten ourselves? The lower courts are still a mess. They still have a 5-4 majority on the Supreme Court. But there's something more foundational. You know, a while back, I wrote 12 reasons why I believe the federal judiciary, and, and you know, that includes the lower courts, is irremediably broken. Irremediably broken. And one of the reasons I, I pointed out that, you know, I, I think is, is something that's it's very hard to articulate quickly, but... When, when you see a very long, you have a long train of observations from so many cases, it, it, it's the sense that the capacity of a good judge to do good is nowhere near the capacity of a bad judge to do harm, especially mixed with the terrible, erroneous constitutional crisis we have where our political system views the courts as the sole and final arbiter, yet they're unelected and there's nothing you can do about it. So what happens is when you have what I would say two-thirds of the federal judiciary that believes that, A, the Constitution is living and breathing to what they think it is and in one direction progressive, and B, it's the sole and final arbiter over the legislature and any, anyone else, that's untenable. You know, without judicial reform, we're – Putting, you know, okay, so you got Neil Gorsuch, so what? You know, I, I wrote an article this week about Judge Posner and the other judges on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals in the civil rights case. And what I go through in this case is this, I, I want to give people a case study of one case that demonstrates why the courts are irremediably broken, why we're never going to win this judicial game conventionally by just merely so-called appointing better judges. N not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. So the 1964 Civil Rights Act, as we know, um, you know, was designed to protect blacks. 
you know, from the Jim Crow era. It's very simple. And Title VII barred any discrimination in the employment uh, setting based upon race and added in sex and several other things, national origin. Now, anyone with half a brain knows that, well, sex means a male or a female. So it means I'm discriminating against you because I don't like women or I don't like men. Um, but homosexuality and transgenderism and nudity and any other behavior or whatever you want to put in the sexual alphabet soup is not covered by that. I mean, right, quite simply. I don't care what you believe on those issues. Legally, it's not in there. So the default position is the Constitution, which is, you know, you have the right, you know, an organization has the right to hire whoever they want. They could be mean about it. They could be nasty. They could be discriminatory. Um, you know, people mix up discrimination is, is you know, a, a government can apply laws unequally. But, you know, if I open up a company, I could have unequal practices for hiring. Now, look, many of us, believe to our core that Title VII is unconstitutional because as mean as it is, you know, again, it's private property rights. But, you know, it was justified because the Jim Crow era, because blacks were denied, you know, their basic unalienable right to pursue happiness, property rights. Um, But certainly to expand upon that is nuts, right? That is pure nuts. You can't rewrite the statute. So incomes, so... But nonetheless, in the full and bonk ruling, eight to three, the court ruled to literally rewrite the Civil Rights Act. And then they openly did it. This is terrible. We, we have to add this in. Here's the deal. Eight of the 11 judges were Republican appointees. So by my math, five of the eight Republicans voted for it. So every Democrat and five of eight Republican appointees, including those that are respected like Frank Easterbrook. This is the most radical case you can imagine, and even then, more than half the Republican appointees are bad. So this just demonstrates what you already know is that most of the circuits, there's a supermajority that believes you could reinvent the Constitution. I'm just going to quote you from Judge Posner. I would prefer to see us acknowledge openly that today we who are judges rather than members of Congress are imposing on a half a century old statute a meaning of sex discrimination that the Congress that enacted it would not have accepted. Right? He's admitting it. This is something courts do fairly frequently to avoid statutory obsolescence and concomitantly to avoid placing the entire burden of updating old statutes on the legislative branch. We should not leave the impression that we are merely the obedient servants of the 1964 Congress carrying out their wishes. We are not. We are taking advantage of what the last half century has taught. I mean, at least, first of all, I'm thankful for his openness about it. But understand, this is what the majority of judges believe. They just don't admit it. You can never win. You can't win if judges are willing to lie, cheat, and steal to enact their policies. If they're willing to grant standing when there's no injury in fact, when there's no legitimate standing, if they're willing to overlook 200 years of precedent, if they're willing to overlook the Constitution, if they're willing to lo- overlook statute, you know, what are you supposed to do? A good judge can't counter that. And, and, and that's what our people are missing. You got to clip their wings and, and take judicial review away. You got to take this away. You got to take issues out of their sphere. There's no other way around it. You got to reform the entire conception of the courts. You know, I don't have time to get into this, but just um, 
two other points. Um, you know, one of the cases where they were sacking our national sovereignty and the courts are overturning our ability to choose who comes into our country, one of these immigration cases, they're now subpoenaing the memo that Chris Kobach gave to Trump as part of his interview when he was interviewing to be DHS secretary. And he didn't get the job. He's not even a member. He's not. He, he was just a candidate. Um, they want to see the memo to get shed light on the so-called Muslim ban. I mean, are you nuts? Is there anything a court can't do? More Also, the, the, the second thing I was going to say is there, there was a, a federal judge in Kentucky, I forgot if it was a Republican or Democrat appointee, um, that allowed a case to proceed where p- people who claim to be hurt at one of these Trump rallies are blaming Trump for inciting violence when Trump just said, get them out of here. You know, when you had the hecklers and he just said, security, get them out of here. I mean, what? <laughs> That's nuts. But it's political, and anything political that's against Republicans, they will do, and they'll get away with it. But we got Neil, Neil Gorsuch on the court. My concern is that we expended so much capital for a man that's really another John Roberts, and again, even if you were a Scalia or a Thomas, it's still back to the balance that Scalia said was untenable. And now, so what? He gets on the court. Right away, he's going to get, you know, he's going to start hearing the all oral arguments for April. Come June, we're going to have a slew of defeats at the court because Kennedy is still, they're going to have at least five to four. And you're going to have all these lower courts on a daily, weekly basis that no one's paying attention to that are killing us. But, but, but there's no foresight. There's no ability to step outside the box. We're losing on every single issue. Now, I didn't have time to get to healthcare today. Um, but, you know, our, our the conservative members, they, they feel like they're at the end of their rope. They have nothing more to do. They have nothing more. Like, what are they supposed to do? They have no one to work with. And they're just getting blamed for not repealing it. And, you know, I sense they're going to go along with this. Not because they believe it's good or they're caving. Just what are they supposed to do? At some point, the conservatives need to get together and realize on all these issues we don't have a party that has a vision of free market healthcare, that has a vision of true America first foreign policy, sovereignty, immigration, what the judiciary should look like. We don't have a party. We don't have a party that's pro-life. They're going to fund it in their first budget that they control all branches of government. They're going to fund Planned Parenthood. Can't have a government shutdown. I, I just... I don't know. I I wish I could be more cheerful. I wish I could find some solace. But until we have a critical mass of people first acknowledging the severity of the problem, that we don't have a party, you know, as much as they, they make so much noise over a bunch of nothingness, fundamentally, we're losing on the issues and the direction of the country, even when the Democrats are out of power. Because at the end of the day, The Republican Party is nothing but the affirmative action track for the Democrats. Anyway, look, if you want to be at a place where people actually understand free markets, you know, like-minded people, but you also want to make it a vacation for your family, come to the Freedom Fest, July 19th to 22nd. It's their 10th anniversary. It's the largest gathering of free free market minds. Um, Lots of conservatives and libertarians there. And, uh, 
this is a trade show for liberty. Picture a trade show for liberty, seminars where you could actually bounce back back and forth great ideas. Go to www.freedomfest.com or call 855-850-3733 to make your reservation at the Paris Resort in Las Vegas. And uh, by the way, make sure you use promo code CRTV100 for $100 off the regular registration rate and um, hope to see you guys there as well coming in July. I am also hopefully going to take a little bit, a little time off next week. I know many of you are celebrating either Easter or Passover and you know I'm going to take some time off. Congress will finally be out, but I'm sure they'll probably call them back for the health care bill. <laughs> so, so much for my vacation. But anyway, thank, thank you all for listening. God bless. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience.